last talk for, for me, and then we're going to follow up with Ben, and he's going to do a great talk of bringing it all together on God's love and bringing, tying it all together for us today. But our talk here is healthy love versus love addiction. And what is love? When you heard that term, what is love? Is it a strong feeling of affection? A feeling of attraction? An overwhelming, passionate desire for somebody taking your breath away? A strong feeling of devotion. Concern for the welfare of another. A protocol upon which reality is actually constructed to operate, which may include feelings of attraction, affection, and devotion. I was consulted to see Jerry some years ago in an ICU after an overdose attempt, and as I went in to assess him, I, I asked him, what's going on that, that brought you to the point of wanting to take your life? And he teared up and he said, well, my wife has left me. And I empathized, and I said, I'm, I'm sorry your wife has left you, but, but what's going on that, that you were trying to take your life because of this? And he said, well, I, I wanted her to come back. I, I wanted her to regret leaving me. I love her too much to let her go. Does Jerry love his wife? Was this love? How do you hear the word love in the description? Did Jerry have strong feelings for his wife? Does Jerry have a strong desire to do what's in her best interest? No. He definitely had strong feelings, but where did his feelings focus? On whom was he primarily concerned with himself? This was not love. This was concern for self, self-centeredness. When it's full of love versus dependency, sometimes called codependency, sometimes called love addiction. Love originates in God. God is love, and it is giving. It's beneficent. It's other-centered. It's outward-moving. It is the principle of seeking to do what's in the best interest of others because it is actually in their eternal best interest regardless of how one feels in the moment. Where dependency originates in self, motivated by fear of not having, fear of, of not being loved, perhaps, or not being significant. It's seeking to take from others. It's exploitive. It's self-centered. It's, it is seeking to gratify self, even if it hurts another. When, in order to understand this, we need to understand law. And when you hear the word law, what comes to mind? What does this word mean? Do you hear rules, restrictions, regulations, the way human beings uh, make laws? Or do you, do you hear like law of gravity, laws of health, laws of physics? Well, God is the creator of reality. He builds space, time, energy, matter, life. And his laws are those laws upon which reality exists. We human beings, we can't build reality. So we make up rules. We call them laws. And we threaten and use power to inflict punishment upon people for breaking our so-called laws. You see, states can make marijuana legal or tobacco legal, but they can never pass laws to make it healthy. This is the big difference between God's laws upon which reality operate and human rules. Do you want a healthy love relationship? Well, healthy love relationships require that we operate in harmony with God's design laws for life. Doctors cannot get patients well 
in, vi in violation of the laws of health. Oh, they can relieve suffering, perhaps relieve pain, treat symptoms, but they cannot get wellness while violating the laws of health. Why don't you put water in the gas tank of your car? It's cheaper than gas because it would violate the laws of physics. It wasn't designed to run that way, and the car won't operate. Relationships cannot be healthy outside God's design parameters. They require harmony. It doesn't matter how healthy you are. If you want a healthy relationship, both parties need to be healthy. Healthy relationships require healthy people. Even if you're perfectly healthy like Jesus, his relationship with Judas broke down because Judas was filled with selfishness and would not love. So what are the design laws for relationships? First one we're going to talk about is the law of liberty. Now you maybe have not heard of it, but think about the law of gravity for a minute. Do you have to know about gravity for gravity to work in your life? Do you have to believe in gravity for gravity to work in your life? How about you go to the top of this building and you deny gravity? I refuse to believe in you and you step off. Will gravity care? No. Gravity still operates. The only variable is degree. Step off a five-inch curb, you twist an ankle. Step off a 500-foot building, you die. But gravity does the exact same thing both places. The law of liberty is like this. It is just a constant on how relationships in reality operate. The only variable you're going to see is in degree of the violation. Is gravity predictable? Yes, very predictable. And so is the law of liberty. You can predict outcomes if you understand the law. So imagine a young man who has been dating a woman for months and, and has come to be convinced this is the one he wants to spend his life with. So he takes her out for a nice dinner, walk in a park, gets down on a knee, and proposes. While she's fond for him, thinks uh, maybe there's potential. She isn't quite sure he's the one, so she asks for a little while to think about it. But he is fearful. He's immature. He's insecure. And he stands up, reaches in his pocket, pulls out a pistol, puts it to her head, says, look, I spent time on you. I've been spending money on you. You better marry me, and you better love me, or I will kill you. How does she respond? Does she respond, finally a strong man who'll take care of me? Well, obviously not. When you violate liberty in relationships, predictable consequences happen. And predictable consequence number one, does she love him more or does she love him less? Love is always damaged and will eventually be destroyed if liberty is violated. Does she want to stay with him, or does she want to get away? A desire to rebel is instilled in the heart. And I want to tell you, that desire to rebel in the face of your freedoms being taken away is a godly desire because you're rebelling against a violation of God's design and your rebellion is designed to put you back in harmony with God's law of liberty. And I can't tell you when my patients come to see me when they're rebelling in a relationship. Maybe it's a marriage relationship and their marriage partner is violating their liberty and they're rebelling against that but they're being told by their pastor or their church you should submit to the authority of your husband. Not if he's violating God's laws. You shouldn't. Because there are predictable consequences. Love will be destroyed. A desire to rebel, this is a godly desire, simply putting you in harmony with God's design. And then a third consequence will come in just a moment. But I'm going to show you the various degrees. Say you're out with your significant other with a restaurant, at a restaurant, and a waitress comes up and asks, what would you like to drink? And you go, hey, I'd like a Coca-Cola, please. And your significant other looks at the waitress, not to you, says, she's not allowed to have Coke, bring her water. 
Love them more or love them less? Desire to stay and eat with that person? Go get a table by yourself. Okay? Now, if that is the only thing like that that has ever happened in your entire relationship, that doesn't end a relationship. It just twists the ankle. That's the five-inch curb. But notice which direction it pushed it. Pistol to the head, though. Okay, if you have any health left at all, that should end the relationship. That's the 500-foot building, okay? That's done. It should be done. But three predictable consequences. Love is damaged, eventually be destroyed. Desire to rebel is still in the heart. But if your, the desire to rebellion doesn't result in your reclaiming your autonomy, if you stay when you have the option to leave, but you choose to stay anyway, then a third consequence happens. Your individuality is slowly eroded. You lose the ability to think and reason for yourself. You start seeing the world through the lens of who you've, who you've surrendered to, their mind. You become what I call a shadow person. Shirley was referred by her primary care physician after years of depression. And as she sat in my office for the first time, it was very difficult to get a history from her. She sat there with her head down, looking at the floor, uh, shoulders rolled in, hands between her knees, answering questions with a very soft monotone, uh-huh. Uh-uh. Very difficult to get a history. But eventually she disclosed that she'd been married for 20 years to her husband who was physically abusive to her. And she told me uh, an account of one day that her husband told her he was coming home at 5 and he wanted dinner ready when he got there. And uh, a few minutes after 5, about 5 after 5, she's putting dinner on the table, at which time he begins to hit her. And as he's punching her and hitting her, he says, why do you make me do this? Why, did, why didn't you have dinner ready on time? If you'd had dinner on table at 5 o'clock when I told you to, I wouldn't have to beat you. I only do this because I love you. And I expressed, as she described that, I expressed some disgust at her husband's behavior. And that's when she made eye contact with me for the first time. She looked up and she said, oh, no, it wasn't his fault. If I would have had dinner ready on time, he wouldn't have had to hit me. Was she thinking for herself? No. no. She had become a shadow person. She viewed the world through the lens of her husband's mind and her husband's way of think, seeing things. Violate liberty, love will be damaged and eventually destroyed. A desire to rebel will be instilled in the heart. And if freedom is not restored, then individuality is slowly eroded and we become shadow people. We lose our individuality. Most people don't use physical guns in their relationships. Some do, but most don't. Most use what I call emotional guns. And you know the emotional guns. Perhaps you've seen them, if not experienced them. The gun that points at you and says, if you don't do what I say, behave the way I want, act the way I want, say what I want, uh, have dinner ready when I want, then I'm going to pout, I'm going to stomp, I'm going to cry, I'm going to criticize, I'm going to curse, I'm going to call names, I'm going to slam doors, I'm going to break things, I'm going to withhold intimacy, I'm going to withhold money. There is a gun pointed at you. And if you don't do what they say, it's going to fire and so you learn to conform yourself to avoid uh, having that gunfire. But love can only exist in an atmosphere of freedom. It only exists in freedom. But what is love? We've explored the law of liberty. Now we're going to explore the law of love. 1 Corinthians tells us that love is not self-seeking. It doesn't seek self. It's other-centered. It's outwards-moving. It's beneficent. It's giving. It's a protocol which God, if it makes sense to you, God, who is love, when he built reality, would he make it in harmony with himself or would he build it to go against him? Well, he would build it to be in harmony with him. And so you will find that this principle of love is built into every aspect of God's creation. The principle of giving is the principle of life. 
Oceans give their waters to the clouds, which rain over lands, forming lakes, rivers, and streams, which flow back to the ocean, a never-ending circle of giving upon which life exists on our planet. If a body of water separates and stops flowing, stops giving, what happens? It stagnates, and everything in it dies. A body of water in the Middle East receives water from the Jordan, but doesn't give any away, and it's called the Dead Sea. Not an accident. That's what happens when you take, but you don't give. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide to the plants, and the plants give oxygen back to you. A never-ending circle of giving upon which life is designed to operate. But you're free to transgress the law. You could take a plastic bag, tie it over your head, selfishly hoard your carbon dioxide to yourself. But the wages of that is, now you understand Scripture. Sin is transgression of the law. The law are the principles upon which life is built, like the law of love and the principles of giving, like tying a plastic bag over your head, and the wages of doing that is death. That's how God's reality works. Very simple. God simply wants to put us back in harmony and restore his methods or laws for life into us so that we can live. God's law is design law. Protocols upon which reality function. Health requires, requires harmony with God's design. So if God built the universe to operate upon the law of love, what happened? I went through this in our first talk this morning. It's a critical piece to understand so you understand how this law gets broken. And that is, remember, imagine that healthy marriage relationship and somebody, you're in a healthy marriage relationship and somebody you love and trust comes to you and tells you your spouse is having an affair. But it's not true. But they show pictures they've doctored in their computer. And even though your spouse is loyal and faithful, if you believe the lie, does something inside you change? Notice, lies believed will break the circle of love and trust. And broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. I don't trust you in here because I believe you're actually cheating. I'm, I'm afraid of what you're going to bring me. So you can't come in, into my bedroom tonight. I have to watch out for myself now. So I've got to get the money. I've got to get the kids. I've got to get, get, get the car. I've got to watch out for me because you don't have my back. Lies believe break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. Fear and selfishness result in acts of selfishness, acts of sin. And this is damaging to mind, character, body, relationships. This is a terminal condition. This is the condition of the carnal man, the carnal woman. Self-centeredness, fear, seeking for self. Fear, understand, is an infection to God's creation. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. That's exactly right. We're not talking the old English meaning of awe and admiration. We mean terror, dread, fear. Okay? Sin causes fear. Love casts fear out. Fear is antithetical to love. And it's fact, it's like a seesaw. As fear goes up, love goes down. As love goes up, fear goes down. As fear goes up, concern for self goes up up and concern for others goes down. As love goes up, not only does the fear go down, but concern for self goes down, concern for others goes up. This is how reality works. Neurobiologically, as you develop your love circuits and your concern, you act altruistically, you develop the circuits that calm your own fear circuits. You experience less fear neurobiologically. Fear, though, destroys health. 
the uh, research looked at uh, children growing up in the Iraqi war zones compared to those in the safe zones, and they discovered that those in the war zones were significantly and statistically shorter than those in the safe zones. Why? Because chronic fear interferes with nutritional absorption and physiologic growth. Fear impairs physical growth. Intellectual growth is impaired. Have you ever known people with test anxiety? If you become significantly fearful, you're under imminent threat and you're trying to study for an exam, how well will your studies go if there is a, a first-person shooter in your apartment complex heading down your hallway and you're studying? How well will your learning happen in that fear environment? Fear impairs intellectual growth. What happens with spiritual growth? What happens when we teach theologies that teach people to actually be afraid of God? What happens is their spiritual growth is undermined and they create all types of legal theologies and structures that make themselves feel less fearful, but they actually don't grow to become more godly. Relational growth, this we're going to talk about here, codependency. Relationship growth is impaired when it's fear-driven. Fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of loneliness, fear of not being loved, fear of not being understood. And what happens in those relationships is the person becomes more controlling, more monitoring, more critical, more demanding. Freedoms are undermined when fear drives the relationship. Dependency is fear-based, and when we become fearful, we become desperate. When we become desperate because we're fearful, we lose discernment or discriminating decision-making. Let me give you the example of scuba diving. I want you to imagine you're out scuba diving, and as you're getting your gear ready on the dive boat, you look over, and there's another person happening to be on the dive boat with you, and this person, let's just say, is a little slovenly. Uh, chewing tobacco, maybe he's got some postulating, uh, looks like maybe a little cancerous lesions on the mouth there. It's kind of disgusting. Uh, but you don't know that person, so you're not worried. You're diving, you're having a good time, but sadly, uh, you get trapped. Your leg gets stuck, your oxygen is running out, you're given the no oxygen sign to everybody, and it, that person that was kind of slovenly and gross on there, they see your desperate situation, and they swim over, and they offer to buddy breathe with you. What are you going to do? Is there anybody here that thinks they won't take that regulator and take that oxygen? I promise you will. You will. Now I want you to imagine you're in a dive shop, and you're looking for a new regulator for your equipment. And the same person in there, he sees you shopping, he saw you on the boat, and he goes, hey, that regulator, that's great. And he picks one up off the display, sticks it in his mouth, and says, oh, yeah, it feels really good. Try it. Now what do you do? Wait a second, how come you won't put it in your mouth now, but you did before? You see, when you experience life as I'm drowning in loneliness, I'm desperate, I, 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 I will never find anybody, I'm going to die of abandonment and isolation if I don't find anybody, it doesn't matter who swims along, it doesn't matter how uh, ill-equipped they are, you will latch on because they will give you a little bit of attention oxygen and help you feel better in that moment. But it will be dysfunctional. When you actually don't need somebody, you don't have, I need somebody, I need somebody. No, I'd like somebody. I'm gonna go to the dive shop and check this out, but I don't really need that, no thanks, I will pass on that. It gives you, when you're not desperate, when you don't need a relationship, you just desire one, then you have discernment and can actually turn people who are very poorly qualified down. Dependency versus love, the contrast. 
both can give, and this is what confuses a lot of people in codependent relationships. They see giving as a behavior, but they don't understand the motive for the giving. Dependency gives, though, in order to get. I give in order to, I, I'm going to give, I'm codependent. I give in order to get praise, in order to get love, in order to get time, in order to get attention. I give to get, whereas love gives to give, not give to get. Fear of, fear of loneliness, fear of, um, of not being loved. So you're trying to medicate whatever it is. I'm lonely, I'm abandoned, I don't feel good. So I give in order to get that person's attention and time. Consider a cowboy and their horse. It's a great metaphor for people in dependent relationships. But, but he, he buys me all these nice clothes. He just bought me a new car. He just did that. He just did this. Yeah? Well, you know what? Think about a cowboy and his horse. Buys it the best gear, best tackle, gives it the best feed. Uh, it puts it up in the best barns. Jealous if someone tries to take his horse. Get very, very defensive, protective of that horse. Why? Why does he do all this for the horse? So the horse can serve him best. Keep it in the best condition so it will always be there to serve him. He's not actually interested in the health and welfare and happiness of the horse. He's interested in keeping the horse in, in optimal service to him. That is not love. And many people in relationships like that, where the person may do lots of things, but it's only to keep the other one in good service. Dependency relationships are, talk about roller coasters, they are the real roller, ups and downs, moments of great intense passion, moments of terrible arguments and hostility, separation, reconciliation. This is what they often do. But love gives in order to give. Love rejoices in seeing the happiness of another without expectation of any return, just to be a blessing to another. Dependency phases. Let's go for the relational, relationship phases of dependency very quickly. It starts with a search phase. I, I need somebody. I'm alone. I'm abandoned. I have nobody. I've got to find somebody, and I'm searching for somebody. And I will tell you, healthy relationships require healthy people. Unhealthy people are not attracted to healthy people. They are not. The way you find a healthy person is be dealing with yourself and overcoming your fears and insecurities and becoming more mature. And what happens is the people you used to find attractive are really not attractive anymore. I call, we call this complementary pathology. That, that if you think about a jigsaw puzzle piece, that your particular pathology and brokenness, you will seek somebody who has brokenness that complements your brokenness so the two together can make one person. Because neither one of you make a person on your own because you're only, you're, you're only a broken person. And this is what codependent relationships do. See, and so if you don't heal yourself, you will just simply continue to re, uh, repeat and find the New people with the same pathology. That's why women who marry alcoholics will marry one after another, after another, after another. Have you seen that? Same pathologies over and over again. So it starts with a search phase. New person, same pathology. And then after they identify somebody, see somebody, oh, they're attractive, they're beautiful, they're perfect. I've never met someone like him. And the fantasy of what that person wants them to be overshadows the reality of who they actually are. So, it, oh, you're perfect for me. Oh, but, but hey, didn't, didn't he just get out on parole for his third uh, offense? Oh, yeah, but he was framed. That wasn't his fault. Fantasy overshadows reality. And then the relief phase. Oh, finally, my soulmate, the one who can love me like I've never been loved before. 
Oh, I've never been so happy. Wait a second. Didn't you say that thing three weeks ago with that other guy? Oh, but he was a loser. Why are you trying to bring me down? This is the one God has for me. Then the anxiety phase, very quickly, because reality begins to try and shatter the fantasy. And so we start to get anxious and nervous. Oh, oh, those pictures. Oh, those pictures on his phone. They must have been there before we started dating. They, they, he wouldn't be downloading that stuff anymore. No, no, that couldn't really be happening. No, no, that had to be. I'm sure he will delete that when I bring that up to him tonight. Denial phase. Avoidance of reality, making all kinds of excuses, distorting, denying. Um, it's never their fault. He really does love me. The escalation phase, which is the emotional desperation phase, the monitoring, the checking on, the criticizing, the trying to control, the, the, the trying to be there so that the person can't, uh, the, the desperation, escalation phase of trying to save it through monitoring, correcting, overseeing, and controlling another person. And then the withdrawal phase, the relationship breaks up, which ends up in depression, perhaps a suicide attempt in the hospital saying, I, I told her that if she ever left me, I would kill myself, and I want her to regret leaving me. This is the withdrawal phase, only then to be propelled back into a new search phase to find somebody else. She didn't deserve me anyway. Love versus dependency. Let's contrast very quickly love versus dependency. And this is a test. And it's in the last chapter, last paragraph of chapter 8 in the book, Could It Be the Symbol? It's a paragraph. And, and if, if people you're dealing with say, I don't know, I can't tell. Is my relationship a love relationship or is it a dependent relationship? This is a test. Just simply say, well, how long have you been in this relationship? I've been in a relationship for three years with this person. Okay. You've got three years of evidence to answer these questions. Love is healing. Dependency is destructive. So over the last three years, have you become more mature, more confident? Have you grown? Have you, have, you, have you been developing and advancing in godliness? Or have you become more anxious, more depressed, more stressed, more worried? Have you been torn down in this relationship? Love always builds up. Dependency always tears down. It's a test. Love is freeing, dependency is controlling. Do you have more freedom, and are you giving more freedom? Do you respect the autonomy of your partner, or are you trying to control, or are you being controlled and monitoring over the last three years? Uh, love is interested in another, dependency is interested in itself. When you think about your relationship, your primary concern with what's happening to you and how you're being treated, or do you simply love and cherish and want to bring joy and happiness to the one you love? Love is stable, dependency is wavering. So over the course of time, have you experienced steadiness, stability, confidence in the relationship itself? Or is the relationship like that yo-yo? We have great moments of intense passion and joy and commitment, and then well, I don't know what, and it's fearful, and I'm afraid. I don't know if we'll be there next week or not. Is it oscillating? Test it. This is all testable. Love is fearless, meaning you don't live in fear, whereas dependency is fear-ridden, a fear of abandonment, fear of rejection, fear of being criticized, fear of not being good enough, all kinds of fears in dependency. Love is orderly and reliable. Dependency is chaotic and unreliable. You can, again, just look at how that functions. Love is based on a principle, not just an emotion. It will include emotion, but it's based on that principle. Do you see the principle of self-sacrifice, where people, when they're not feeling good, will still do for the welfare of the other? Or the dependency being based on feeling, they only do when they feel good. If they don't feel like it, they never do anything they don't feel like. Love is consistent. 
Dependency is inconsistent. Do you, do you have a partner that you can predict? They're consistent. They're reliable. They're inconsistent. I have no clue what we're going to get today. Love is honest and truthful. Dependency is dishonest and deceitful to both parties. Dependency lies to self as much as it does to others. Love is patient. Dependency is impulsive. Love can wait. Give time. I've seen relationships where they love that one person really was practicing love and just waited that person needed to achieve something in their life. Just was patient, waited. Dependency? No, right now. I thought you loved me. Aren't you, you mean that I'm not important enough for you to, you're not going to make me wait? Love is kind. Dependency is cruel to both parties. Love is forgiving, dependency is resentful. In the relationship of the last three years, do you feel like there's a scorecard being kept? Or do you feel like, you know what, all relationships have their bumps in the roads or ups and downs, but we always reconcile, and once they're reconciled, they're forgotten. They're not part of the relationship, and it's gone. It's healed. Or is there a scorecard, and, and every time something else comes, you've got that list that keeps coming back over and over and over again. There's just always the replay of the, and the resentment from past hurts or slights or forgetfulness or whatever. Love protects, dependency exploits. Love sacrifices self, while dependency sacrifices the other. You will see this in a codependent relationship. You, other persons are always having to sacrifice for, for the one who is, is uh, seeking to get for self. Love never ends. Dependency never lasts. That's another thing. Your relationships, how many have you been in? How long have they lasted? True love relationships are lasting. They can get through things, through difficult times. Dependency never lasts. They always burn out, always. Love never fails. Dependency never succeeds. Now, with all that in mind, I'm going to give you a true email that I received, and we're going to work through this email together. And I'm going to ask you, what do you understand to be saying, what would you say? If this email came to you, how would you respond if you're a church elder, if you're a counselor, you're somebody, pastor, someone, how would you respond if this came in? I have a friend whose husband has cheated on her for many years. He is a good father, and the children love him. This woman has been an obedient child of Christ in staying with her husband. Last year, she had enough and divorced him. He came back and wanted to mend his marriage, but continues to sin with other women. And every week still comes home and sleeps in another room in the house. My sister in Christ would like her marriage to heal, but cannot take his cheating. Does God want her to stay in this marriage when her husband continues like this? Role modeling evil behavior in his house. Okay, what is your assessment? This is the first portion of our interaction. What is your assessment? Does this husband love his wife? No. no. If the wife loves her husband, what is the right action for her to take and why if she loves him? Let him go, leave. Here's my response. Of course God does not want anyone to live in a deceitful, exploitive, selfish relationship where trust does not exist. Her husband doesn't love her, and until she realizes it, she will fail to be able to love him. The most loving action for her to take is to hold him accountable for his untrustworthy character and throw him out. 
she should only allow him back when he has demonstrated reliable, documentable, credible evidence that he is trustworthy and loves her more than himself. His words are meaningless. His actions demonstrate an immature human being who is not qualified to be her husband. Her response. This is, this is an actual exchange. Here's her response. But Dr. Jennings, can't a person still love his wife and give in to the flesh? He has to love her. Why would he come back to her and the children? The Bible says to forgive, so she has forgiven. And when we marry, aren't we supposed to stay married? God wants us to keep our families together, doesn't he? It's confusing when there is emotional abuse to know what God would have us do. It must be possible to have the Holy Spirit guide us out of a bad, re bad relationships and focus on God. So your assessment, let's take the first part. Her response, but Dr. Jennings, can a person still love his wife and give into the flesh? He has to love her. Why would he come back to be with her and, and the children? What do you hear in her question? Think diagnostically. What's being written? The abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Good man brings forth good of the good stored up, and evil man brings forth the evil of the evil stored up in him. It's not just good or evil, it's a principle. People reveal. Mathematicians bring forth math, musicians bring forth music. This woman's bringing forth something. This woman is almost certainly talking about herself and not her sister in Christ. Note the desperate need not to admit the truth and find some pretext to hold on to the idea that she is loved. He has to love her. He has to. No, he actually doesn't. He doesn't have to. And in fact, his behavior shows he doesn't. And why would he come back to be with her? To see, there's evidence. He's coming back. He wouldn't come back if he didn't love her. How is she loved? Like a cowboy loves his horse. He loves the cooking. He loves the laundry being done. He loves the shopping. He loves the bills being paid and all the things that she does to serve him. He doesn't love her. Second part. The Bible says to forgive, and so she has forgiven, and, and when we marry, aren't we supposed to stay married? God wants us to keep our families together, doesn't he? What do you hear in this question? Now we're going to reach out and use the Bible in order to deny reality. He has to love me, and the Bible says I'm supposed to forgive, so I'm going to forgive, and if I just follow the Bible, if I just do what the Bible says, it's going to work out, right? I'm looking for a rule, an action. Just tell me what to do. I'm not uh, trying to understand how reality works. I don't, I don't understand design laws and the laws upon which rela relationships are built. So do you hear love and concern for her husband in this question, or do you hear fear for herself and a desperate pleading to rationalize not being alone? Do you see? This is not about her loving her husband. It's about her terror of being abandoned. Can you see it? Yes? Does forgiving someone mean you can trust them? No. 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 The question of her forgiveness is not really relevant to whether he's trustworthy or not. That's the relevant question here. Does God want us to keep our families together in all circumstances? Or only within his design? Only within his design. So, 
God does not want us to keep families together. And I get this a lot from Christians who have been told, but, but in his particular case, you know, essentially every pastor is going to say, you have the right to divorce because he has committed adultery. And adultery means that you are allowed now to divorce him. Be thankful he didn't just beat you regularly and not sleep with somebody. Because had he just beaten you regularly and not slept with somebody, you could not divorce him under Bible rules. This is how a lot of Christian primitive think thinks. It's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. Understanding how reality works and what God taught them in Scripture, here's the truths of what Scripture teaches. God hates divorce. He hates it. Why? Because divorce only happens when love breaks down. Divorce never happens when love operates as God designs. Do you get that? So he hates it because it's a manifestation of broken love in the hearts of people. Then why did God give divorce? Jesus said it. He gave them the writ of divorcement. Jesus said, why? God did not intend it to be this way. But he gave them the writ of divorcement because of the hardness of your heart. So how do you understand that then? Doctors hate amputating limbs. They hate it. Well, why do they do it? When limbs become gangrenous, when circulation breaks down. Remember, the, blood is, uh, the life is in the blood and it circulates. It's a metaphor for the law of love. And when you obstruct the circulation, the limb dies. And so doctors hate it because the circulation is broken. Health is breaking down. Doctors hate that when that happens. But they still will amputate a limb. Why? To save the life. God gave them the writ of divorcement when love stopped flowing in their hearts and their hearts became hard in order to actually save the innocent party that was being destroyed by the hard-hearted person. This is reality. And so I, in my paraphrase of Matthew chapter 10, 34 and 35, it says, Jesus speaking, don't think that I've come to make peace with a selfish world. I have not come to bring peace with selfishness, but a sword to cut selfishness out of the hearts of men. I've come to cut dysfunctional family ties and free a son from the selfish loyalty to his father's ambitions and feuds and to sever a daughter from the control of an oppressive and a manipulative mother to cut through the fear and hostility a daughter-in-law has toward her mother-in-law. This is the sort of truth and the sort of love that is designed to cut the fear and selfishness of dependencies. And, and dysfunctional relationships. And then, I'm, it's confusing. When there is emotional abuse to know what God would have us do. Yes, what do you hear? This woman is confused. Yes, she's confused. She recognizes something is wrong, but can't figure out what it is and why. What has happened in her life that has damaged her ability to actually figure this out? How does the Holy Spirit work? The Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth and love, which leaves us free to make decisions or to choose. The Holy Spirit doesn't do the choosing for us. And so until she can embrace the truth of God's design for relationships and reclaim autonomy over herself and stop surrendering to the emotional abuse of her husband, she will continue to be in dysfunction. Only when she begins practicing principles and governance of herself, loving God, loving others, meaning standing up to her husband and holding him accountable so that he has opportunity to repent, which means ending the relationship and kicking him out. So what's the solution? Truth must be truthful about self and about the relationship. 
freedom must set others free. Get this one, guys. Must set others free not to like you or love you. Codependent people cannot tolerate other people not liking them. And so they, this is how they get manipulated by trying to make other people like them rather than focusing on being the healthy person they can be in governance of themselves and give other people freedom not to like me. It's okay. You don't have to like me. You don't have to love me. But when we seek to get that from other people, then we are, um, we, we're surrendering our autonomy, we're spending our, surrendering our liberty, and the beauty of the law of liberty, when you set other people free not to like you or love you, you've just freed yourself from their manipulation. And then love, you must choose to love others regardless of how it feels, doing what's in the actual best interest, even if it hurts in the moment to do it. So truth, freedom, and love. Healthy relationships require healthy people, and healthy people are in governance of themselves. So how do we do this? Meditate on God's word, law of worship, application, by beholding we become changed, practicing thinking for yourself, the law of exertion, you get stronger as you apply the methods to your life, identify God's design protocols and choose to apply them to your life. Truth, application, freedom, choose to set others free and think what they want about you and, and stop trying to control others so you can get what you need. Law of liberty application, um, form beliefs for yourself from the truth, not from opinions of other people. And then love, meditate on God's character of love, law of worship and the law of love. Give to bless others, altruism, volunteerism, law of love, and law of exertion. Application, harmony with God's design law, restores, heals, and sets free. So um, love, healthy love only comes from God. It's experienced only as we live in harmony with God's design laws for life. Thank you very much.